0: Human identity is a topic of utmost importance. Who are we? What is our purpose? Where do we find our significance? These are critically important questions that we as people have a long broken history of scouring the world to find answers to, often looking in all the wrong places. Who are we? What is our purpose? Where do we find our significance? Pastor and theologian John Calvin once wrote Humans never achieve a true knowledge of themselves unless they first look upon God's face and then descend from contemplation of God to scrutinize themselves. Notice where John Calvin is. Pointing us to find answers to those ever important questions. He directs our gaze to God. Human identity is grounded in God. We as humans find who we truly are by looking to God. We were created by God to relate with God and to reflect God. We were created by God to relate with God and to reflect God. Uh, This truth about our human identity is called the image of God. Human beings were created in the image of God. We're in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Genesis, and the title of the series is God the Creator and the Redeemer. God the Creator and God the Redeemer. In this series, we're exploring uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So we're just going to march through those chapters And we've seen already in the first two weeks of this series God's masterful work in creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. What we're going to do the next few weeks is to slow down a little bit and to give focused attention on this theological truth that human beings are created in the image of God so that we might tease out the implications of that grand truth, the image of God. Three implications that we're going to explore these next three weeks. The image of God and gender today. The image of God and gender. Next Sunday, the image of God and race. The image of God and race. And then two weeks from today, the image of God and the unborn. The image of God and the unborn. Three implications that we see, we encounter We field questions every day in our culture. Every day. And there's a message about all of these areas that's put out by the culture. And the Bible speaks to these. And so we want to equip ourselves to think well, to respond well to these questions. All of it's flowing from the image of God, how we think about human identity. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. You can find Genesis 1 helpfully on page 1 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you a copy in the lobby where the bookcase is. There's some hardback black Bibles. You're welcome to take one. Also get one for a friend if they need it. Genesis 1. I read all of Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2 last week. What we're going to do this morning is just focus on two verses. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. What did God intend to communicate to us about human identity through this passage? Notice what God says as he creates people, man and woman. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, the first person plural pronouns. Us, our, our. God is three and God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing from before all time in perfect harmony, perfect order, perfect unity. God is three and God is one. He is a tri unity, He is the Trinity. We see this reality as He creates people. God, who exists in perfect community, creates men and women to live in community. We are highly relational beings. Whether you're in a relationship with a spouse or not, we are highly relational beings. We reflect our creator. Notice the unique language surrounding the creation of people. We have a creation identity that no other creature shares. We were created in his image, after his likeness. What this means is we, to a certain degree, reflect God's character back to him. We mirror some, not all, some of his characteristics back to him. Before God spoke any of his creation into being... He existed in this perfect harmony, perfect order, sharing perfect love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly content in perfect communion. Out of the overflow of the love of the Trinity, He then created all things for His good pleasure. He wasn't deficient in any way, He was in, he was in perfect order perfect love, but out of his good pleasure, out of the overflow of his love already existing in the the Trinity, he creates. And he creates men and women, the, the crown of his creation. We share an identity that no other creature shares, the image of God. What are these characteristics that we reflect back to God? We relate we speak we delight we work and we steward that's a short list that we can identify from Genesis chapter 1 we relate we speak we delight we work and we steward or we we caretake that which God entrusts to us these are all things that we've already seen God do in Genesis chapter 1 he relates with himself relationship among the trinity He speaks creation into existence. He delights in that which he creates. What's the refrain in Genesis 1? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. God delights in that which he creates. He works the six days of creation, and then he rests. And then he is the ultimate steward, the ultimate caretaker, manager over that which he creates. And we reflect a measure of God's character back to him. Again, we're highly relational. Created to have relationship with him and with one another. Relationship with God on that vertical axis, people and God, and relationship with one another on the horizontal axis, people with people. Highly relational. It's part of our image of God. We are speaking creatures. Language is fundamental to our lives, fundamental to to our culture, We're speaking creatures. We delight in good things. We were created to delight in the good gifts that God has given us. And the problem is, after Genesis 3, we delight in the wrong things. But we are created to delight in good things. We work, and work is a good thing. Yes, it's corrupted after the fall in Genesis 3, but notice it exists in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Work is a good thing. It's part of... How we reflect God who also works. Work is a gift. And we have a stewarding responsibility. Notice what Moses says to us in verse 26. We are to have dominion over the created order. And in this context, dominion does not mean domination. It has a positive connotation. It's a stewarding word, a caretaking word. We're to take good care of that which God entrusts to us in creation. Not to abuse it, but to steward it, to wisely manage it. That dominion, that stewardship is a reflection of God and his care, his managing. We reflect God, his characteristics, not all of them, but some of them back to him and it gives him glory. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We take our cues from God. We find who we truly are by looking to God. We resemble him, we reflect him, we represent him, but we are not him. And so there's, there's a difference. There's an otherness. We are reflecting him, but we are not him. This is the image of God. And this reality of the image of God gives every person who's ever been born inherent dignity, worth, and value No matter your age, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your ability, no matter your gender, we all have inherent dignity because we reflect our creator. We must honor the image of God in fellow human beings. And that's what we seek to do the rest of this morning and for the next two Sundays, to honor the image of God in fellow human beings. Now, the specific implication of the image of God that we want to focus on for the rest of this morning is the image of God and gender. The image of God and gender. Allow me to share share a scenario that is just commonplace in our culture right now. In our workplaces, in our families, in churches, in organizations, in neighborhoods, we all are facing this question. Let me just share a scenario. The parents of children at Janey Elementary School in Washington, D.C. were notified by school officials that one of their children's teachers would now be addressed as Miss Ruder instead of Mr. Ruder. This teacher declared himself transgender. An email was sent to parents by the principal announcing how the transition of Mr. Ruder to Miss Ruder would be explained to the children. Parents were instructed to inform their children that gender is a socially constructed reality and that the transition of Mr. Reuter to Ms. Reuter would be welcomed as an opportunity for the school and its students to show their commitment to freedom and respect. How do you respond to this? How do you think well about this? It is staring each one of you down right now. It's staring me down as I parent children in the public school system, as I coach basketball in the community, staring all of us down. Our culture has undergone a seismic shift in how we think about gender, hasn't it? From well-known celebrities making their transition public to restroom and locker room usage to the appropriate pronoun to use for people to how you fill out the intake form of the doctor's office or a job application or a school application or how you designate yourself on Facebook. These are questions largely unheard of a generation ago. But we're we're facing them now fast and furious. How do we think well about this? With the outset, I want to be clear that the transgender question is not simply a question. It's not simply a topic to debate. It's not simply an issue. It's fundamentally about people. Precious people created in the image of God. It's about people, they're on the line here. We've gotta be ever cognizant of that. We don't diminish this conversation. We don't make light of this issue. We certainly don't make fun of someone wrestling with this issue. That's a devastating reality. To make light of or to worse, make fun of somebody who's battling gender dysphoria. And we'll talk about what that, what that is. There are people in our workplaces, classrooms, neighborhoods, churches, in our families that are hurting and isolated, shattered inside because they have feelings that betray their biology. And perhaps you find yourself in that position this morning. Well, how do we think about this together? Christian churches must foster climates of compassion where conversations can be had that lead to restoration in Christ. Let me repeat that. Christian churches must foster climates of compassion where conversations can be had. Real, deep, good, biblical conversations can be had that lead to restoration in Christ. That's our goal this morning, as we consider the transgender question. Not to duck it, but to address it in a compassionate way. To address it as Jesus addressed every topic with grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. As we consider this question, we desire to foster a climate of compassion where conversations can be had that lead to restoration in Christ. Is gender a social construct? Is gender self-designated? Are we free to be whom we feel to be? Critically important questions that our passage in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 speaks to. As we dive into this topic this morning, I want to provide a few definitions that will just help us navigate the issue. So we'll define some terms. And after defining terms, we want to situate this gender conversation in the overall storyline of the Bible. In the creation, fall, restoration storyline of the Bible. So we want to situate this issue in that overarching big narrative. And then finally, we'll conclude with some practical applications. Some practical applications. So an outline of our time together is we want to define our terms. Then we want to situate this gender question, this gender issue in the storyline of the Bible. And then we want to consider some practical applications. So first, defining our terms. Dr. Mark Yarhouse, who serves as a professor of Christian thought and mental health at Regent University in Virginia, has written a book entitled Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. He defines this gender identity like this. Gender identity concerns, commonly referred to as gender dysphoria, refers to experiences of Gender identity in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves as female, for instance, does not match or align with their birth sex as male or vice versa. So, psychologically and emotionally, you feel female, but biologically, chromosomally, you are male or vice versa. This is gender dysphoria or sometimes referred to as gender confusion, or sometimes gender identity concerns. It's an internal conflict that a person feels, and the feelings are real. Pastor and author Vaughn Roberts has written a helpful book, 75 pages, very accessible. It's called Transgender. He provides a few more definitions. He defines a transgender person as this a term used to describe someone who is born female biologically but identifies and lives as a man or vice versa, one who is born male biologically but identifies or lives as a woman. For some, this involves medical intervention such as hormone therapy and surgeries, but not all transgender people want or are able to have this. It may simply involve announcing the transition to friends and family, dressing differently, or changing official documents. And so putting these two definitions together, a transgender person is a person who experiences gender dysphoria, that internal conflict between your biology and what you feel, your biological sex and how you feel emotionally, and then chooses to act on it. They choose to live out the transition. They choose to make the transition. One final definition intersex. Intersex. Intersex is a physical condition affecting a very small percentage of people whose chromosomal makeup or malformation of reproductive organs don't allow them to be distinctly identified as male or female at birth. So, Kleinfelter syndrome, for example, where men can have two or more X chromosomes, or hypospadias of uh, malformation of the male genitalia. Intersex cases affect a very, very small percentage of the population. And the abundant majority of those cases uh, do not identify as transgender. Okay? So that's, that's intersex. So we'll, we'll revisit some of these definitions throughout the rest of our time first, defining our terms, second, situating this question or this issue in the overarching storyline of the Bible, the creation, fall, restoration storyline of the Bible. A very basic outline of the Bible is creation, fall, restoration. God created everything as we've been unpacking these last couple of weeks, and it was all good. And then human beings, the crown of his creation, fell by disobeying his good authority. They went their own way, which is called sin. And then God is at work restoring fallen sinful people through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Creation, fall, restoration in Christ. Uh, This is the outline. It's the storyline of the Bible. And it is like a pair of glasses which we need to put on and see all of the world, situate every issue To see it clearly through the the, the lens of the storyline of the Bible. Including the gender question. Earlier we we read a foundational passage in, in Genesis 1. And it says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. This last clause is key. Male and female he created them. Gender differentiation goes back to the dawn of creation. Gender differentiation originates with God. Gender is God's creation. It's his good design. Your gender is a gift to be received, not a prison to be resisted. Your gender is a gift to be received, not a prison to be resisted. Gender is not a social construct, gender is a God construct. Gender is God-designated, not self-designated. We are free to be whom God creates us to be. We're not free to be who we feel to be. That's not freedom. Listen again to the content of the email sent to the parents at Janie Elementary School in Washington, D.C. Parents were instructed to inform their children that gender is a socially constructed reality And that the transition from Mr. Reuter to Ms. Reuter should be welcomed as an opportunity for the school and its students to show their commitment to freedom and respect. Notice gender, they're saying, is a social construct. And we want our students to show their commitment to freedom. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that defines freedom as life without bounds. Be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. And anyone who tells you otherwise is hateful, is bigoted, is narrow-minded, is intolerant. But is this freedom? Is this freedom? Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. Freedom is living under the right restrictions. Is a fish free when it jumps out of the water onto dry ground? Friends, that's not freedom. That's destruction. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, the absence of boundaries. It's the right restrictions in place and living within them. The right boundaries and living within them. That's true freedom. We have, in our conversations with people, undermine the freedom narrative that's being put out. That's not freedom, that's bondage. That's not liberty, it's destruction. Is a fish free when it jumps beyond its God-ordained bounds of water and lies gasping for air on the dry ground? No, that's not freedom, it's destruction. A fish is free insofar as it's living and operating and enjoying its God-intended bounds. Roughly 35% of transgender people attempt suicide. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking reality. Transgender activists will say that this appalling statistic stems from societal ridicule and abuse and intolerance towards these friends. But is it possible? Is it possible that this inner turmoil... That leads to destruction stems from precious people created in the image of God transitioning and living outside the bounds that they were created to live within. Like a fish jumping out of water gasping for oxygen on the ground. Male and female God created them. Gender differentiation is God's creation. It's a good gift from God to be received, honored, and enjoyed. But, like all of creation, it too has been corrupted. Something has gone awry. Things aren't the way they are supposed to be, are they? This is the next part in the meta, meta- narrative creation fall. Fall. The fall of human beings recorded in Genesis 3 impacts every inch of society, every corner of society, including how we perceive and process the gender question. In Genesis 3, our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, ate of the tree they were instructed not to. They became an authority unto themselves. They defined for themselves what was permissible. They lived outside the bounds of what God created. And it leads to ruin, a cascading destruction, ripples throughout history. They seek to define what is permissible for themselves. And as a result, death, disease, and disorder is propagated in every generation since. We continue to live under the results of the fall. Pastor Vaughn Roberts says it well in his book, The act of Adam and Eve eating the fruit was a bid for freedom, but it did not deliver what Satan promised. Far from it, raising us up so that we are like God. Our rebellion against him drags us down. We have fallen, and we all are affected. All of us are broken. All of us are disordered in one way or another. And then he walks through several categories of disorder in our lives. Our bodies are disordered. Our physical bodies are susceptible to disease Deformity and deterioration. Our minds are disordered. We battle stress, insecurity, anxiety, depression, alienation, despair. Our hearts are disordered. Our feelings, our affections, our desires are corrupted. We want and crave that which destroys us, which ruins us. These are the catastrophic results of the fall. Friends, gender dysphoria is a result of the fall, this internal conflict that rages within some people between their biology and their feelings, between their chromosomal sex and their perceived sex, is a result of the fall. But here is a very important cautious, caution in this conversation there is a difference between the results of sin generally and the results of sin personally. There's a difference between the results of sin generally and the results of sin personally. Roberts writes, "...in very general terms, we can say that gender dysphoria is the result of sin, as is everything that spoils life on earth. If human beings hadn't turned from God, everything would still be perfect." But it's very important that we don't move from the general to the specific and imply that an individual's gender dysphoria is because of their own personal sin. Gender dysphoria has to do with how people feel, what they battle inside, the temptations that rage within. And the reality of life in a fallen world is that we can't eliminate our feelings, our temptations, and the wars that wage within. This is life in a fallen world. There are people in this life who have a particular temptation and predisposition towards alcoholism. There are people in this life who have a particular temptation and predisposition towards same-sex attraction. There are people who have a temptation and predisposition towards gender dysphoria. On the general level, all three of these areas of struggle and temptation are a result of the fall, certainly. They wouldn't exist had Adam and Eve not disobeyed. But beware of moving from the general to the specific and claiming that an individual's predisposition or their susceptibility towards alcoholism, same-sex attraction, or gender dysphoria is a result of their own personal choice. Personal sin. Did you see the the difference? The results of of the fall, the results of sin generally, versus the result of sin personally, as in personal choice. Pastor Vaughn Roberts shares his own experience as a man who battles feelings of same-sex attraction, to spell this out. I I didn't simply choose to be attracted to the same sex. Causation is much more complex than that so we shouldn't feel guilty or ashamed about the temptation. The same is true for all of us in a fallen world. We may not be responsible for the particular struggles and temptations we have, but we are all, of course, responsible for how we respond to them. We may not be responsible for the particular struggle or temptations that we face, but we are, of course, responsible for how we respond to them. The feeling of wanting a drink for an alcoholic is not a sin. It's a temptation. Taking the first drink is the sin. The feeling of being attracted to a person of your same sex is not a sin. It's a temptation. Engaging physically in a same-sex relationship is sin. The feeling of not being at peace with your own biological gender is not a sin. It's a temptation. But making the transition to the other gender is sin. Gender Dysphoria is a temptation. Transgender living is a sin. It is a rejection, a rebellion of how God has created you. We may not be responsible for the particular struggles and temptations we have, but we are always responsible for how we respond to them. The storyline of the Bible interprets our lives, creation, fall, and finally, the glorious good news of restoration. In the wake of the tragic fall of humankind, in Genesis chapter 3, God would hold out a wonderful promise of restoration. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, the serpent who's the embodiment of Satan and evil himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is an offspring of Eve, one coming many, many generations later who will bruise, crush the head of the serpent. Who would this be? Jesus Christ, the one who would be born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man, who would shoulder our sin at the cross. The perfect one would die in the place of imperfect people, shouldering all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame. And anybody who would trust in him is given new life. They find a new identity in Jesus Christ. We receive by faith this new glorious identity, not based on our feelings, not based on how we look or what people think of us or how much money we have. It's based on our union with Jesus. We are accepted in Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. It changes everything. That's how we see ourselves. That's our identity. It is in Christ, inseparably united to him, wrapped securely in his love forever and ever. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're battling gender dysphoria, I just want to encourage you that it is okay. You are loved. Jesus Christ loves you. And he's welcoming you to trust in him, to find your all in all in him, to find your identity in him, your security in him. He brings restoration and hope where there is despair and brokenness. Look to Christ. Be united to Christ by faith. You don't have to make yourself into something else. Look to Christ. Find your identity in him. The truth is you may battle feelings of gender dysphoria for the rest of your life. We are not promised deliverance and full restoration in this life. It is coming in the next life when Jesus Christ returns in glory. But you may battle these feelings, these temptations, just like an alcoholic may battle feelings and temptations towards alcohol, just like someone who has same-sex attraction may battle that, this side of heaven. You may battle gender dysphoria the rest of your life, But as you turn to Jesus, he promises to be with you and to strengthen you in the midst of your weakness. In the hour of temptation, he is there. He does not abandon his people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul records his own conversation, his own wrestling with God, with his own thorn in the flesh. Some suggest this is some physical affliction, some perhaps a sexual temptation of some kind. We simply don't know. All we know is that he is pained inside. He is wrestling. He is tempted. There is something that he is battling. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded to God to remove it. Jesus responds to Paul's prayer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore, Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The very things that make you weak in this life are an invitation to go to Christ and find his strength. When we are weak, then we are strong, trusting in him because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Where we're on shaky ground is when we think we're strong and self-sufficient. That's a false sense of strength. We're actually strongest when we're in that hour of weakness because all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. First, we've defined some terms in the transgender discussion then we've situated the issue in the creation fall restoration storyline lastly some practical applications what do you do as a parent if your child shares with you feelings of gender confusion gender dysphoria and conflict inside what do you do first and foremost we must pray for our children the heavy lifting of parenting Friends, is done through prayer. Prayer. Pray and keep praying. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Prayer is the real work of parenting. Be patient with your child. Mark Yarhouse writes in Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Most children who meet the criteria for gender dysphoria do not continue to meet the criteria as they grow up and enter adolescence. There is an avalanche of hormones and feelings as children grow up. Be patient with them. Don't make rushed, rash decisions, irreversible decisions that are regretted later. Just be patient. Be patient. Shepherd your children. Point them to Christ. Help them situate themselves in the storyline of the Bible. They're God's creation. They will be inflicted with the results of the fall but their hope is in the restoration in Jesus Christ help them to see their lives through the lens of creation fall restoration and know that you are the authority of your children until they're 18 years old you are the shepherd of your child you're the authority it's going to require some hard decisions you're the authority until they're 18 years old, shepherd them. Don't shy back from that authority, shepherd them by the grace of God. Uh, A second question, what pronoun should you use when addressing a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, who's transgender? Let, Let me just say, this is a matter of conscience and a matter of wisdom. And so I'll just just share with you my own prayerful, thoughtful opinion on this. I think this is a matter of conscience. It's a matter of prudence. If it is in your own household, and they're under 18 years old, you're the authority. You're the primary shepherd. In my opinion, you call them their created gender. Outside of your home, a co-worker, a neighbor, an extended family member, in my opinion, if the gospel is to be shared relationally in conversation, I think wisdom says, call the people what they're asking you to call them so that you can have conversation with them and the opportunity to point them to Jesus Christ versus Digging your heels in and calling them something that's going to offend them and have no opportunity for conversation thereafter. So, so, so in, my, in, in my opinion, again, this is a matter of conscience. It's a matter of prudence. Outside your household, interacting, call people what you're, they're asking you to call them, that you might have opportunities down the line to share with them who Christ is versus putting up a barrier that you'll never have a conversation with them of import, of meaning. These are dicey, dicey questions. One final application question. What should be our overarching response when interacting with people who struggle with gender identity? Love, listen, lead. Love, listen, lead. Love, listen, lead. Love people well. Remember, this isn't just an issue to talk about. A debate topic. These are precious people. Neighbors, family members, co-workers. Precious people. Created in God's image. Love them well. Listen to their story. Ask good questions. Empathize with them. Do your very best. Just step step into their situation and empathize with them. Walk with them. Seek to understand them the best you can. Love. Listen. Lead. Lead them To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer. To every brokenness in our world. Point them to Jesus Christ. Lead them to Jesus. He can do something about the situation. In conversation. Through prayer. Point them. Lead them. To Jesus Christ. He is with us through every heartache. Through every thorny situation, Jesus Christ is there. Jesus Christ is the answer. A bruised reed, he won't break over. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. He is tender and he is true. The perfect balance of grace and truth. He's not squishy with his convictions. He is firm with his convictions, but tender in how he delivers them. Firm with his convictions, tender in how he delivers them. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the answer. We must cling to him with a grip that doesn't let go and point people to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your grace. We need your wisdom. We need your help. You have situated each one of us in a sphere of influence around precious people created in the image of God who are not walking with you. Lord, this is a privilege to be your servants, to be your hands and feet in this world. It is a challenge. We are desperate for you to give us guidance and equipping and courage in this. Oh Lord, help us not to shrink back in cowardice. Help us not to be heavy-handed in foolishness. God, help us to operate with grace and truth, firm in our convictions, tender in our delivery of them. Lord, you say in this world we will have trouble. And this topic and many others like it are are one of the evidences of that. But give us grace and help us to believe that you have overcome the world. We can take heart because you have overcome the world. God, I pray for some in this room who perhaps are, are, are battling feelings of gender dysphoria. Would you comfort them? Would you minister to them? Would they know that their church loves them and is willing to walk with them, pray with them, point them to Jesus. Help people, Lord, not to feel isolated, but to lean into their community and to trust in Christ. We pray this in your name, amen.